Hello. Good evening. <clears throat> I've always find, found it uh, quite amazing and, and inspiring uh, to reflect on the fact that the reason we have the, the Buddha's teachings now, the, way, the reason they're available for us these days, and it's been almost 2,600 years since the Buddha died, since his death, is because the teachings, these suttas, the discourses, were memorized by his disciples who were around him at that time, at the time of his life when he was teaching. Uh, all of these suttas were memorized by the monks and nuns who were alive at that time, and then they passed these on. Uh, and it was an oral tradition for at least 200 years, probably more than that, before any of it was written down. So we have uh, these beings who committed these things to memory to thank for the fact that we have these teachings now. And this isn't a tradition we have so much in the West, this tradition of memorizing texts like this, but it's still a vital thing in Asia, in Buddhist countries, certainly. There are still a lot of people, mostly monks and nuns, but lay people as well, who, who take time and memorize some of the more famous texts and suttas. And it's actually said that in some countries, and I know this is true in Burma, I think it's probably the case in Thailand and Sri Lanka as well, in the Theravada Buddhist countries, that there, it's said that there are, are people, monks and nuns who have memorized the entire Tipitaka, which some of you may know what that looks like but it's a lot of volumes. It's, uh, it's all of the discourses, all of the, the monastic code that's contained in the Vinaya and the Abhidhamma. It would be like memorizing a couple of sets of encyclopedias or a bit more than that. It's uh, kind of impressive. And certainly some of the people I've practiced with and teachers I've had there, if you ask them a que question, they don't go to the shelf for the reference. They close their eyes for a second and then it comes out, so it's uh, impressive. I've managed to memorize the Metta Sutta and maybe a couple of other short chants, and I've been humbled by how much repetition it has taken for it to stick in there. Um, one of the most famous and most beloved of the suttas in Theravada Buddhism is the Satipatthana Sutta, which Annie mentioned last night. And many people, lay people and, and uh, monks and nuns, also memorize this and chant it very regularly. <coughs> a few years ago, I spent most of a year on a long pilgrimage in India to the holy sites, the Buddhist holy sites there. And I had been before, but this was a much more extensive pilgrimage. And I went with a good friend of mine who's a very well-loved, well-respected teacher. He's a Buddhist monk. And he uh, had a year's sabbatical from his duties. Uh, he's a co-abbot at a monastery, and he had a, arranged for a year off. He'd been in the robes for 25 years at that time. and. Uh, he wanted to go to India to visit these, these sites. He had never been to any of them, to Bodh Gaya or any of the famous places that uh, Theravada Buddhists love to go. Well, Buddhists of all traditions visit these sites. And I was traveling as his companion and attendant because monks in this tradition don't handle money and their food uh, each day depends on someone offering it to them on a daily basis. They aren't allowed to hold food or buy anything. So it would have been difficult for him to travel, not impossible, but difficult to travel on his own. <coughs> and so a friend of mine and I kind of split the year and we went along with him on this uh, incredible journey through India. And we spent uh, what's called the Vasa, the rains retreat, which is a period of three lunar months, 12 weeks, 
during the, what's the rainy season in that part of the world. And at that time, uh, the monks and nuns in this tradition determined to stay in one place. They don't go wandering about. So they pick a suitable place and they stay there. And it's a retreat period usually. But it's part of their rule, a custom at least, to stay in one place. That goes, it's a, a tradition that goes back to the time of the Buddha. I've heard various stories why. Someone said it was to keep them out of the rice fields at planting time. But it's hard to picture them actually tromping through the rice fields to begin with, but uh, that's one reason that's given. And so we spent this period in a place called Savati, or actually nowadays a small village there is called Sahet Mahet, but it was there the ancient ruins of the city of Savati, which was a famous place at the time of the Buddha. And you can still see the old uh, city walls are still there from that time. And it's the site of the Jetavana Grove, which was also called Anattapindika's Park. If you've read much in the suttas, it's mentioned a lot there. It's a, a famous place. And the Buddha spent more rains retreats, this rains period, in that, in that area than in any other single location. He was there a lot. And there's many, many famous discourses that were given there. In fact, almost half of the uh, suttas, it's uh, 152 discourses in the Majjhima Nikaya, this one collection of middle length discourses. 75 of those were given in, in this place in Savati. And in the park uh, there, the Jetta Grove, that's still there, it's quite beautiful. It's a big area. It has beautiful lawns and gardens and large trees. And there are the foundation areas of huts and uh, buildings where buildings were at the time that the Buddha spent, spent living there. There's one they say is, was the Buddha's hut, who knows. But uh, it's quite amazing. There's a timeless feeling there. And although it's, still, it's in ruins, it's mostly just the foundations. One gets the feeling that maybe the Buddha just got up and uh, was there just, just moments before. So my friend, uh, the Ajahn and I would walk. We were staying some distance away in a small vihara and we would walk every morning to the park uh, before sunrise. We'd try to get there for the sunrise and we'd spend the mornings meditating there. We each had our tree to sit under. And uh, on the way walking, most mornings we would hear someone chanting this Satipatthana Sutta. It's a custom to chant and to broadcast it out over loudspeakers. If you've been in Buddhist countries, you know that's uh, very common. The louder, the better, <laughs> usually. Uh, sound quality is of less importance than <laughs> volume. <laughs> but this, we would hear this very beautiful chanting in the morning. So I, the reason I have this odd black box up front here is that I'm going to play a little bit of it for you tonight. Uh, this isn't the uh, exact chanting that we would hear, but it's the same text. And it's, uh, this is quite lovely. Uh, the chanting is done by Venerable Omalpe Sobitatero, who's a Sri Lankan monk. And I think it can be really um, good to hear the original Pali, even though we Probably most of us don't speak Pali, but it's, um, it connects us to this ancient lineage that we're part of here. And it's kind of a, it's a potent and beautiful language because it's, the only reason it exists now is because it's used to preserve these teachings. It's not, it's not a spoken language anymore. So without further ado, I'll play a bit of it. And, uh, I didn't have a chance to adjust the volume, so um, brace yourselves. I don't think it'll be too loud, and I'll, I'll raise the volume if it, and if someone in the back would just give me a thumbs up when it's at a, a volume you can hear. You can close your eyes and pretend the Buddha is chanting.
Now, I could probably listen to that all night, but I, I realize most, not all of you are as devotional a temperament as I am. And I'll read the translation of the part that I just played, which is the first, the opening stanza of the sutta. And I know many of you are probably familiar with it. It's well known. And he began with the homage to the Buddha, the namo tassa that we, we do when we take the precepts and uh, chant the refuges and precepts. And then the first words were, evamme suttam, thus I have heard. And so many suttas begin this way, evamme suttam. Thus have I heard, on one occasion, the Blessed One was living in the Kuru country, where there was a town of the Kurus named Kamasadamma. There he addressed the bhikkhus thus, bhikkhus, venerable sir, they replied. And then the blessed one said this, bhikkhus, this is the direct path for the purification of beings, for the surmounting of sorrow and lamentation, for the disappearance of pain and grief, for the attainment of the true way, for the realization of Nibbana namely the four foundations of mindfulness. Well, this is a, that's a fairly straightforward and powerful statement to make. This is the direct way leading to the end of suffering, to the realization of the greatest peace. This practice of the four foundations or one could say the four establishments of mindfulness. And this is what Annie spoke about quite a lot last night, and I'll, I'll say a bit more, perhaps repeat some of it. So this sutta is, uh, consists of a very detailed and, and quite precise description of our actual meditation practice and this training in mindfulness that we're doing here on the retreat. And of all the suttas, this one is the most clear, most comprehensive set of, of actual meditation instructions in the whole collection of suttas for mindfulness practice. And in this sutta, this, the Buddha breaks down our experience into these four broad categories, 
could say, four spheres of attention. And then he describes very precisely how we practice with them, how we bring mindfulness to this, to these four areas. And the entirety of our experience is included within these four categories, as Annie mentioned last night. And then, for example, in the first satipatthana, the first foundation, this is mindfulness of the body, kaya, kaya in Pali, kaya nupasana, mindfulness of the body. And this section begins with a description of mindfulness of breathing, which is what we've been offering in the morning instructions so far in these first days of, of this part of the retreat. So as I said, these, within these four foundations of body, feelings, mind, and objects of mind, you could say functions or patterns of experience, the entirety of our experience, all of our life is included within these. There's no part that's left out. And this is really the beauty of this practice, I think. And then you, if you think about it, it would have to be this way. We couldn't leave anything out if we left some part of our life out of our exploration, it would be incomplete and we could never find a fullness of understanding if we didn't include everything, all of our life within this. So that's what we're doing here on this retreat. We're exploring all of our experience, the entirety of our life with the use of this tool of mindfulness so in a way, you could say that a retreat like this is similar to doing a period of scientific research. There's a quality of it that has that, that feeling. We're investigating this terrain of our body and mind, this process of body-mind, with the aim of understanding, with the aim of learning as much as we can about life, about the nature of life, about what it means to be human in the deepest possible way. And really what the nature of reality, what the universe really is all about. That's our exploration. And the Buddha said that we have everything that we need right here in this fathom long body, he described it. I guess a body is about a fathom in length. We have everything we need in that to understand the entirety of the universe plumb the depths of possible human understanding. But we need to bring interest and we need, as, uh, we need curiosity as a, a key part of the formula here for this exploration, for this field work we're engaged in. The other night, Rebecca spoke about this study that she had read uh, where they had questioned people who had had these near-death experiences, had gone very close to death, perhaps had even experienced at least the first part of what it is to die, and then had managed to come back. And they were asked what was important, what were the things that they thought about in terms of how one lives that mattered to them. And she said that there were two things that were mentioned most often one of them was, was staying curious about life, and the other was being connected, engaged, directly engaged with life. A couple of weeks ago, I watched this uh, nature program on TV while I was spending some time with my parents on the public TV. It was a a show about these giant lizards called monitor lizards. Some of them can get quite huge. I think they can get six or eight feet long, you know, almost alligator sized. And uh, they come in all sizes, but this program focused on the big ones because they're the coolest and uh, <laughs> most impressive. <laughs> and uh, they're amazingly intelligent. They, they're smarter than your average lizard. <laughs> and they, they showed them doing these tasks 
they would get a food reward and they could distinguish between all kinds of things. And, and apparently they can become quite affectionate with their trainers and zookeepers, the ones who are kept in, in places like that. One doesn't think of lizards showing great affection, but this one of them would come up to its trainer and kind of nuzzle him and want to be petted like a dog. And they showed one of them getting its bath and it was just had this blissful kind of lizardy smile on its face and getting scrubbed with a brush. It's quite, uh, well, it's great. <laughs> Makes you want to have one around. <laughs> but, you know, if they're hungry, they might actually eat you. They're, <laughs> they're big enough to eat uh, deer and people. So it's not unheard of for, for them to swallow you down. But I guess if they're well fed, they can be kind of sweet. <laughs> But I digress. Um, <laughs> there was a scientist on this program. Here's my point. <laughs> I, have a, I have a point with this story. There was this scientist on the program. He was getting to be a bit older. And he had been uh, in this studying in this one part of uh, the desert in Western Australia. He'd been um, doing field work, field work there for uh, 40 years at least, this kind of small tract. and studying these particular kinds of animals, these monitor lizards. And he was so excited about them. And, you know, he probably knew them all personally within this area. He'd been there so much. And, uh, but he was talking about how much he'd just begun to learn about them. And uh, he had this incredible curiosity and, and very happy, this bright, happy energy this amazing connection to his world and, and this great curiosity that he manifested that I found kind of Im quite impressive. You'd think after 40 years you might be sick of it, but he, he just was so into what his work was there. Albert Einstein once said, I have no special talent. I am just passionately curious. So can we bring some of this kind of passionate curiosity to our practice, to our meditation, to this exploration here? And there's really so much we can learn from this investigation, from this exploration that we're undertaking. But to have some quality of, of real curiosity, okay, what's really going on here? So our attitude is so important when we come to practice, our approach, how we, how we look at it, how we approach it. So often we come to a retreat and we have a subtle or not so subtle agenda. There's something we want to achieve or to get out of it. When we leave, we want to feel like we're taking something with us something we maybe feel like we didn't have before. But what if we were to shift our approach? And what if our goal, rather than achieving something, was just to understand as much as possible? You know, to understand how does this mind, body, how does my heart, my mind really function? What's really happening in any given moment? What is it in life that really leads to true, to freedom and peace? And what do I really need right now, just in this moment, to be happy, to feel complete and whole? This is a quotation from Henry Nguyen, who I believe is a Catholic priest. He said, the spiritual life is a life in which we wait, actively present to the moment, trusting that new things will happen to us, new things that are far beyond our imagination, fantasy, or prediction. This indeed is a very radical stance toward life. I like this idea of being actively present to the moment trusting that new things will come if we're there in the receptive mode. 
And if you ever have spent time with very young children, those of you who are parents know this very well, especially maybe with preschool kids, they're so wide open to the world. They have such an incredible open, curious relationship to their world, to possibilities and to the mystery of, of things. You know, the universe is magical and mysterious when you're at that age, especially. They're not so bound by notions of what's real, what isn't. And the boundaries between imagination and reality, conventional reality are not so solid. Things are fluid. But we're also smart. We know so much when we grow up. We've been to school a lot. We think we know a lot. But here on retreat, when we come to meditation, is it possible that we can step a bit outside the boundaries of what we know or what we think we know and all that we believe to be true? Can we adopt some of this, this kind of stance, this relationship with life, this waiting actively present to the moment, trusting that things will present themselves? So much of the time we tend to solidify our world and we limit our idea of what's possible and our world, our life, our universe can become at times rather narrow and constrained. We're told, we've been told for so long to grow up and be sensible, get real, all of that. And we lose sight sometimes of some of the mystery and wonder, all the possibilities. Some of this gets drained from our life. We can lose some of our sense of awe and curiosity. Since I was very young, I've enjoyed looking at the stars in the night sky. When I was little, my older brother had a telescope, not a very good one, but we could see things like the rings around Saturn. I remember when he first brought that into focus and and here's this point of light, but then it resolves into this beautiful orb with this halo of rings. I've always loved to look at the incredible pictures that the astronomers are taking now with these fantastic telescopes that they've built on high mountains and now they have them out in space. And these amazing things that are going on out there, these vast distances, I find it beautiful and mind bending to see. I remember reading that some astronomer had turned one of these incredible, powerful telescopes to what was believed to be a boring part of the sky. And they found a couple thousand new galaxies out there that no one had known were there before. And each of these has billions of stars. A couple of years ago, I read an article about astronomers had found a, they'd happened to turn their telescope at the right time to see a supernova blowing off this exploding star, you know. Apparently the reason we have rocky things and material that makes bodies and heavier things, things heavier than gases, is because of stars exploding. It all comes from those kinds of events. So that's why we have an earth and why we have bodies is because of stars exploding. So it turns out we're, we're stardust after all. <laughs> so they were really excited to see this thing. But then reading the article, this, this supernova was 80 million light years away. So it happened 80 million years ago, but the light was just getting here to the telescope lens. So these incredible distances, you know, what, what does time mean then? We're seeing it now, but it happened 80 million years ago. There's some weirdness about time in that. I'll leave it to you to ponder it, but 
I can't get my mind around it. <laughs> and that's kind of close, you know. Sometimes they look 14 billion light years. They want to see as far back as possible because it's the beginning of the universe, I guess. But then they say, okay, all this stuff out there, that's only 10% of it. 90% of it is dark matter that they don't know what it is. But in order for the universe to function like it does, it must be there. So, okay. <laughs> I mean, when we're looking at these distances, there's this incredible paradox I was mentioning that we're always looking into the past. And if you think about it, even things that are closer, they're still always falling away. So even, it's always just this present moment, but it's never really quite this present moment because everything we see has just happened. Hmm. <laughs> I guess we can get really close though. This is uh, from a poem by T.S. Eliot. It's from the Four Quartets, the part called Burnt Norton. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. What might have been and what has been point to one end, which is always present. Or say that the end precedes the beginning and the end and the beginning were always there before the beginning and after the end and all is always now. Got that? <laughs> I'm gonna keep going on this <laughs> tack a little longer. I mean, it gets even weirder when you go to really small things, <laughs> like what the, the particle physicists look at, down at the scale of atoms and parts of atoms. I remember reading once someone said, well, if the nucleus of a hydrogen atom, that's a simple one, was as the size of a, an orange or a plum or something, then the electron would be the size of a grain of sand and it would be a mile away. And all the rest of it is empty space. And everything's made up out of these things. But then they say, well, actually the electron is, is just a probability, we can't say that it actually exists at any particular moment. So, you know, this, this painful knee is just empty space and probabilities mostly, <laughs> but it feels really solid. And then they split the atoms and they find these things called quarks. They're up, down, top, bottom, strange, and charmed quarks. Apparently the last one they found was the top quark, which has no mass and no dimension. So it doesn't exist, but they found it anyway. <laughs> I mean, it's as though these people decided to come up with the weirdest thing they could think of and then put it out there. And I mean, can, could you come up with something weirder than that? <laughs> Even if you tried. But you know, they're spending their lives in this research. They talk about the Big Bang as a theory for the beginning of the universe and the entire universe, including time and space, arose from a single, a singularity, a point of no dimension. I have a little thing to read from a, this is from a book called The Big Bang, The Buddha and the Baby Boom. It's by Wes Nisker. Some of you probably know him. He has a good sense of humor. He said, for instance, consider the discovery of antimatter. So we have antimatter and matter. When this big bang went off, we got matter and antimatter. He says, consider the discovery of antimatter. We are told by the scientist shamans that when a particle of matter meets a particle of antimatter, they will annihilate each other. Apparently the Big Bang created a tiny bit more matter than antimatter, so we have a universe. 
but the discovery of antimatter raises some new metaphysical questions for our time. Now we have to ask not only what is the matter, but also what is the antimatter? And what does the antimatter have against the matter? And more important, does it matter? So it seems that there's, at the same time, much more and much less to the universe than meets the eye. There's vast amounts of unknown dark matter, but it's all pretty much empty space. We tend to live our lives in the realm of appearances, in the surface of things, in the realm of concepts so much of the time, and we take it for granted that that's all there is. And it's not to deny the the reality of conventional life, of the conventional world that we live, and we have to do the things that make up our daily lives. We go to our jobs and take care of business in those ways, and that's real. And we do our best to live with grace and integrity in this conventional world. But if we make this the entirety of our reality, If we say, well, that's all there is to it, then we really limit our potential and the possibilities that we have for discovering deep truths about life. The Buddha pointed very directly to the somewhat illusory nature of conventional reality. He said this, regard the fleeting world like this, like stars fading and vanishing at dawn like bubbles on a fast-moving stream, like morning dewdrops evaporating on blades of grass, like a candle flickering in a strong wind, echoes, mirages, and phantoms, hallucinations, and like a dream. Albert Einstein put it more succinctly. He said, reality is an illusion, albeit a persistent one. But with this tool of mindfulness, this direct connecting with mindfulness to the moment, the experience of any moment, we connect directly with our life, with our experience, free from our concepts about it. We touch the universe in the most direct possible way by exploring our mind and body. And we can plumb the depths of the universe the depths of understanding right here on the retreat. And we don't need incredible telescopes or atom smashers to do it. The tool we use, the primary tool for this investigation, this exploration is mindfulness. This simple yet remarkably powerful mental factor. Mindfulness is the key to the entire path of practice. The Buddha said, mindfulness is the pathway to the deathless, the pathway to the deepest possible understanding and peace. But the beauty and powerful power of mindfulness lies in its utter simplicity and accessibility. It's always available. It's available to us in any moment, at any time. No matter what's going on, we don't have to attain some kind of special exalted state or some kind of deep absorption in order to be mindful. We don't have to get ready all day to have our moment of mindfulness. We can have it in any moment. And there's nothing in our experience that we can't be mindful of. It's always available to us. There's nothing we can't be mindful of and anything and our experience can serve as a vehicle for liberating insight and wisdom to arise. I think that's fantastic. Anything that we can bring our attention to in any moment can serve as a vehicle for awakening. That is really good luck for us. And it actually, it doesn't matter what we're mindful of from that point of view. So we have everything we need for this exploration, this journey. 
The Pali word for mindfulness is sati. And this is related to a Pali verb, sarati, which means to remember. They're very closely linked. So with mindfulness, with this present moment awareness, we're remembering to actually be present. With the powerful power of mindfulness, we connect to the truth that all we ever have is the present moment. We're either here for it or we're not. This is from Meister Eckhart. He said, there exists only the present instant, a now which always and without end is in itself new. There is no yesterday nor any tomorrow, but only now as it was a thousand years ago and as it will be a thousand years hence. So this remembering to be present, we're awake to each moment's arising. And there's another way that mindfulness relates to this quality of memory. And since seen in this quality of relaxed receptivity I know we've all had the experience where we're trying to remember something, some fact or incident from the past, something that we want to bring to mind. And it seems that the harder we try to remember it, the less, less our, well our mind functions in this way. But when we let go of it and relax, then later usually it springs to mind spontaneously from this place of relaxed, receptive relationship to things. So this is a quality also of mindfulness, of sati. We're not chasing after our experience, but we settle back and we let it arise. Mindfulness is also characterized by qualities of impartiality and non-interfering. Mindfulness doesn't pick and choose doesn't have preferences in that way. It doesn't try to change our experience. It's uninvolved and detached, not in a way that it's not caring, but it's non-interfering. It's not indifference. There's not indifference there. And we actually, the opposite is true. Mindfulness rubs us right up against the objects of our experience. We touch them in the most direct way but it remains non-reactive. It allows our experience to be just the way it is, free of our judgments or preferences, non-reactive in terms of our likes and dislikes. Sometimes this quality is called bare attention. Our attention is bare in that we're not adding anything to our experience. We're not coloring it through our likes and dislikes, through our preferences. We see it just as it is. And the beauty of this kind of attention is that it begins to allow us some freedom to see into our habits and patterns of reactivity. Some of these are very old, deeply conditioned patterns well, you get, we begin to see them from this place of non-reactivity. We see how they function in our lives and ways that some of them keep us bound and limit us. And just this seeing itself can often bring a kind of freedom and a possibility of choice that doesn't ex exist when we're caught in these habits and patterns when we're not caught in this habitual reactivity, we have the possibility to make wiser choices in our lives. We can assess things from a place of calm and clarity and we make wise and appropriate choices from there. And this leads to greater happiness for ourselves and happiness for others. So with mindfulness, we're bringing this relaxed, receptive, non-reactive awareness to every part of our experience as it unfolds moment by moment. 
So we become more present more of the time. We begin to unravel our life and our relationship to it a little bit. We start to see things on more fundamental, more essential levels beneath all of our concepts and ideas and beliefs about it all. Free from all that we know, all that we think we know about life. It's a kind of beginner's mind. That's what Suzuki Roshi called this beginner's mind. It's a fresh mind, open, receptive. So we begin to go to more fundamental levels of understanding with this mindfulness. It's like peeling away the layers of an onion. And we move from the surface appearance of things and the realm of concepts to the field of direct experience and knowing. It's a kind of precognitive understanding where we're letting go of the known all of our ideas about the world and about life and about ourselves and who and what we believe ourselves to be. This is from Thomas Merton. The deep secrecy of my own being is often hidden from me by my own estimate of what I am. Our beliefs about ourselves our own estimate of what we are can sometimes be so strong, we don't even question them. And then we wind up living our whole life. Our whole life gets based on certain kinds of assumptions and beliefs that we just take for granted, never actually looking to see if they're true. And take Take our body, for example. You know, we look in the mirror. There we are standing there. These arms and legs and a body and a head. Hands and feet. We have a long mirror. All of the whole rest of it. But what happens then when we sit in meditation and we explore this, this thing we call body? When we bring our mindfulness really directly to the experience of body, what do we find? From this perspective of bare awareness, of mindfulness free of concepts, then our experience of body shifts really dramatically. And we see that what we call body, this assembly of legs and arms and things, it's actually our experience of that is a flow of constantly changing sensations, right? And it's a flow of elements manifesting as hardness and softness and tension and vibration and movement and heat and cold and things like that. And close your eyes for a second and just slowly move your right arm up and down. We'll make this real quick. Just a couple of times. What, what do you see there in that? You can stop it. Well, <laughs> that looks kind of cool. It's a neat practice, by the way. Maybe I'll introduce it to one of these days. But what do we see then? We can't really experience arm, can we? We experience movement, and tension, and maybe coolness of the, as the arm moves through the air like that, or warmth, or different sensations. That's the experience there. We don't actually experience arm. Sometimes if we're sitting and our mindfulness is precise and very continuous, then our whole experience of body might dissolve into a mist of fine particles that are arising and passing away very quickly. And what's that about? 
Where is the arm and leg and torso and head then? Where does the body end and the rest of the world begin in that field of elements, that flow of sensation? Where's the edge of the body? What in that changing flux of sensations can we call body? So from that perspective, we see that body is just a concept, it's a convention. And that's not to deny the reality of the conventional world. As I said before, you know, I'm sitting up here, you're sitting there. We have these bodies and they want to be fed and cleaned and all the rest of that. But is this the whole truth? Is this the only truth? Is our experience of the body as a field of changing sensations, as a dance of elements, is that somehow less real than our experience when we look in the mirror? Can we hold both of these as equally real? As our practice unfolds and as we begin to connect more and more with this field of direct experience and knowing, then at times we begin to glimpse a great stillness and silence that exists beneath the surface of things, beneath this dance of life, beneath the busyness that seems to be there a lot of the time and this dance of elements and changes sensations, thoughts, and emotions. It's like this incredible effervescence, but beneath it, there's this great stillness and silence. It's a kind of silence, a stillness that's not separate from all of this activity, all of the arisings and passings of life. It's not separate, but it's not affected by it. It's kind of like being under the waves in the ocean. It could be a huge storm going on, but we go down under and it's still and calm there. The ocean isn't separate from the waves, but the depths of the ocean aren't affected by them either. We begin to touch this place of silence, this place of stillness, we see that it contains all the power of nature. That in a way it's the source of all things and it's that to which all things return. This is from a writer named Max Picard. He said, in any moment of time, in every moment of time, through silence, one can be with the origins of all things. Silence contains everything within itself. It is not waiting for anything. It is always wholly present in itself. And it completely fills out the space in which it appears. When we connect with this great stillness, this great silence, allows us to see that our life, that all of our experience is a great dance of, of nature's unfolding. We see life is living itself moment by moment as a natural unfolding of nature. So much of the time we tend to separate ourselves from nature as though somehow we're not part of it. We hold ourselves separate. We see it as something out there. But as we deepen into this great stillness, this great silence, we begin to connect in the deepest possible way to the truth that what we really are, this deep secrecy of being that Thomas Merton spoke about in that quote I read, this deep secrecy of being 
is just this lawful unfolding of nature as life lives itself moment by moment. And when we see this, we can, we can lay down a great burden. Ajahn Chah said, I think this was from Ajahn Chah. I'm, maybe I made it up. I'm pretty sure it's Ajahn Chah. <laughs> he said, what we are doing in this practice is we're giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. I'm gonna read it again, it's so good. What we're doing in this practice is we're giving back to nature what we mistakenly appropriated as our own. So when we give ourselves back to nature, this results in a great relaxation, a great letting go. We let go, we find we let go of so much of the doing of our lives in that way. We move from doing to being. And it's a great relaxation in that. This is a poem by Linda France. I'm lying down looking at the color of sky falling through trees dreaming the real, tasting what it feels like to love it. Why did it take me so long to let go, to simply exhale so the day could breathe itself in and open without me standing in the way? How could I forget the grace of my own body, strong as this blue, tender as the white of the wild blossom, and warm as midday light? Let me practice a patience, bold enough to hold every weather, trusting the elements, the beauty of rain and all its shades of gray. I want whatever's real to be enough. At least it's a place to begin and to master the art of loving it and feel it love me back under my skin. So we have this incredible tool of mindfulness. It's always available to us. No matter how lost we might be at any point, it's always there. We can always come back. And with it, we undertake this great journey, this incredible exploration of our life, this exploration of nature. A retreat like this is really a rare, wonderful opportunity. It's an incredible gift to ourselves and to the world to take time like this. You think about it, there's not that many people who would consider doing, coming to a retreat like this, spending time this way. It's rare in the world. It's so rare for a group of people to come together, committed to living carefully and to undertaking this great exploration. And there's so much we can learn on a retreat like this. So I'll close with a bit more from T.S. Eliot. This is also from the four quartets from Little Gidding. We shall not cease from exploration and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and to know the place for the first time. Through the unknown, unremembered gate, when the last of earth left to discover is that which was the beginning. At the source of the longest river, the voice of the hidden waterfall and the children in the apple tree not known because not looked for, but heard, half heard, in the stillness between two waves of the sea, 
Click now, here, now, always, a condition of complete simplicity, costing not less than everything. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well. So we'll keep sitting quietly for a couple minutes. And I'll ring the bell. Thank you for your kind attention. And there's chanting at 9.15. If you're so inclined, please come. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate